This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why the demand for carbon offsets remains strong, a corporate climate action plan series style, how the SEC is disenfranchising investors, and how one cosmetics company is addressing child labor in its supply chain. It's all in our makeup this week on 350. It's October 9th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as usual from her perch in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. It's great to have you back. How are you? I'm doing great. I had a really nice week off, kind of off, but uh, off in terms of almost no Zoom calls, meetings, I did some writing, did a little traveling, did a little home repair project, and and uh, it was a busy week. It's funny. I, I started off the week saying, I have a week off. What the heck am I going to do with it all? Mm-hmm. And then by Friday afternoon and even Sunday, I was like, oh, my God, the weekends, I'm, there's so much more to do. So <laughs> I don't know. It was nice. It was nice to break the... Uh, the cycle a little bit in this uh, mm-hmm. in this world of all cycle all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. yeah, how about you? I uh, uh, you voted? I hear. I did. I got that in. The deed is done. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. One of the things I love about this voting cycle, at least in California, and I know it's available in a lot of other states, is that you can sign up for for text alerts that say your ballot's been mailed to you. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you send it back, the ballot's been received. Mm-hmm. I think maybe even the ballot, your ballot's been counted. Um, so you get updates. And, you know, I, I for one, here in, in San Francisco Bay Area, I'm not concerned about any shenanigans, but I just wanted to do it mostly because I was curious to see how it worked. But I like that feature. And uh, do you have that in, in Jersey? We do. Uh, the thing, though, that concerns me is that I, ha- I was having a conversation with some friends this week, and all of them were confused about the the rules. You know, they, they didn't know. They, they thought, well, we can't vote in person. I said, well, actually, you can vote in person. No, we can't. I'm like, well, you can, you know. So there's just a lot of confusion, which is which, which concerns me. Um, but you know, on the flip side, I actually saw two people walking to the ballot box while I was there. <laughs> so it's just. I think so many of us have yeah. what, what I what I'm calling pre-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is just you know stress around all that's coming at us over the next <sighs> weeks or months or whatever, it, yep. whatever it's going to be. So yeah, but uh, anyway, let's get on with it. Uh, let's not look ahead. Let's look back at the week in review. So let's start off with this piece by Sarah Murphy, our contributor on all things ESG, uh, about this uh, SEC rule that's been uh, eating at us for a while. I wrote about it uh, a couple months ago that wants to change how we invest uh, with uh, ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues uh, in mind. And uh, uh, apparently uh, it got overwhelming comments uh, against making the change. In other words, supporting the 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 current the status quo on how what it takes to invest uh, in in ESG funds and things like that. Uh, but this is a, a rule that would uh, clamp down on on how ESG works and what those kind of investments are, particularly for pension funds, and make it harder to uh, on on how pension funds can invest uh, in so-called socially responsible investing. Um, they say it's to protect investors, in spite of the fact that these funds are actually doing better than the overall market, and it's actually a better bet. But you know who hates them? Uh, the fossil fuel industry and others who don't seem to make the cut on these funds. They they know like, and uh, they have the ear of the current administration. So, you know, this is a, a another piece on that, and and how it's um, disenfranchising retail investors. Yeah, I mean, the, the the ear of the current administration is interesting, and I'll get to that in a moment. But this, the thing that struck me is just this really makes it difficult for sort of the the little person, right? The person that doesn't own. I mean, the threshold now in order to get a shareholder resolution into the process is twenty five thousand. Uh, used to be two thousand, so that's that's a much higher bar, um, and you can't pool pool resources. So like a, a, a bunch of investors can't get um, together or shareholders can't get together to propose a a resolution anymore. If your resolution, if you do have the opportunity to put a resolution in and it fails, you can't re, you you know, the, you can't resubmit it very easily for the following year. It just makes things a lot harder. Um, One of the things that really struck me is uh, in this story, uh, our, our author, Sarah quotes, one of the SEC commissioners who disagreed with the uh, her statement of opposition. Today's amendments do not serve shareholders or the capital markets more broadly. They will have pronounced effects in two important respects, blah, 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 blah. But, um, you know, she does call out ESG as some as a, as a thing where it's which, which has never been more important uh, to long term value. Um, and she also points to racial injustice and so forth. But what I love about this is, is she's actually a Trump appointee. Hmm. <laughs> I just, I was like, whoa, yeah. So anyway, yeah. I, it's this this rule isn't specifically meant to address. It's meant to address any resolution, but it does, uh, of course, have. Um, it's not a coincidence. I think that yeah. it came up at this time. Well, and also not a coincidence, perhaps, is to that threshold of of now that you need to own twenty five thousand dollars worth of a stock as opposed to two thousand dollars. Is that it? 
it um, boxes out a lot of people at the lower end of the investing uh, spectrum, mm-hmm. which means a lot of yep. people at the lower end of the economic spectrum. Exactly. Um, and there's a there's a quote here from Rick Alexander, who, who's co-founder of something called the, the Shareholder Commons. He says, the sheer racism of a $25,000 threshold uh, for submission in a country with a racial wealth gap like ours is stunning. And so this is, I agree that this is another way to uh to under the guise of protecting the 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 littler guy if you will um of actually keeping them out of having a say on social and environmental issues so um this is something that um you know can be reversed in a subsequent administration <clears throat> um, but, and it doesn't um, go into effect until 2022 i believe yeah so yeah, yeah, so that so this may Fingers actually crossed. this may actually never see the light of day, but it's just it's just frustrating. But um, uh, yep, yeah. But let's let, let's go on to another story uh, that that our contributor Jesse Klein did on um, why Kroger and Publix are bringing the farm to the grocery store. Um, do you want to weigh in on this one, Heather? Yeah, I do. I this this piece. You know, vertical farms, which is what what the story is talking about, and container farms and so forth, are not new, but they have become much more visible during the pandemic. And so Kroger and Publix are actually, you know, in a bid to get people coming to their stores, right? Because so many people are afraid they're they're ordering food from delivery services. Well, these two companies are experimenting now with bringing the farm to their stores. So. Um, they're they're putting containers out into the parking lot in the in the case of Publix in Florida, Kroger is pilot testing. Um, but but basically, it's it's making there there be much closer ties. I think between these these companies that were kind of on the fringe um, and considered not really part of the the mainstream food distribution system and bringing them into the fold. So you know it's interesting. I, I tried some of the the lettuce from one of these organizations recently. And I have to tell you, the the taste was just really distinct. It was great. I, I really enjoyed it. And it also stayed fresh for an more amazing amount of time. You know, just, the, you know how lettuce always goes bad in your refrigerator after maybe, like it seems like you put it in there and all of a sudden it's bad. But this this lettuce stayed for a good two, two and a half weeks. Wow. Wow. Really, really, and really fresh. I mean, it didn't, it didn't spoil at all. So it just, um, anyway, this particular piece, just, it's just an interesting trend to, uh, you know, bring more credibility to the, to the vertical farming. Yeah. And it's, and it certainly brings a whole new way to think about what we, you know, often refer to as food miles. In other words, the distance that something travels from farm to, uh, to store from ultimately farm to fork, uh, it becomes, you know, uh, food feet in some cases, um, just but it also increases the opportunity to uh, for local communities to uh, deal with food deserts, places that have no uh, no real grocery stores with fresh produce, only uh, liquor stores and convenience stores that sell mostly food pack, you know, all you know, prepackaged and not very healthy food. Um, to be able to grow food on site in an empty lot or even just at the parking lot as uh, Kroger is doing, uh, they have uh, mod- modular vertical farms that, that they've, they've put out, I believe, in their parking lot in, C- in two Seattle stores as a, as a prototype. Um, and, and Publix has a, similarly a, a hydroponic farm in their parking lot, as you mentioned. Um, 
you can grow food at scale on site for a small fraction of the water uh, use and without pesticides or, or many maybe even no fertilizers. It's, it's, it's a higher energy input because of the light lighting, the artificial lighting that that's needed. But I think it's a it's a, it's a trade off that seems reasonable. And of course, uh, like everything else, those uh, energy needs will drop as the as the uh, technology gets more efficient. But um, and by the way, this is not; these are not the first um, efforts to do this kind of thing in Brooklyn. Uh, there's a company called Gotham Greens, which has a, I believe, football field size uh, garden on the roof of of one of the Whole Foods. So there again, they're you know growing it upstairs and bringing it downstairs, and then you buy it and bring it home. Uh, so I think this is a this is a potential breakthrough. And I also have to say, this is not going to put farmers out of business because there's only really a limited number of things you can grow this way, mostly leafy greens and, and herbs. You can't probably grow corn or potatoes or any number of other staples uh, this way. So, but still, uh, though, you know, these are the, these healthy, fresh f foods that, uh, that we all need. I'll bring us home with our third story, which focuses on the demand for voluntary carbon offsets by um, one of our contributors over at Ecosystem Marketplace. We, we get to use their articles from time to time. And Steve Zwick, thank you for this one. It's, it's a great piece on new research on the market from last year. But the more intriguing thing to me was that when when they originally published this or were were looking at this research, they assumed that airlines would be the big would be the big factor in driving demand for carbon offsets this year. And of course, we all know that that is not happening. <laughs> that with the travel uh, sector in in the turmoil that it is, there's been a, a grounding, if you will, of certain programs. And while while many of the airlines have carbon offsets programs, they're they're just not being utilized to the, to the effect that they would have been. But um, coming into this market in a big, big way are the carbon neutrality, the net zero, and we could have a field day with a discussion of those phrases. But there's a lot of corporate commitments that are suddenly driving uh, the, the market for voluntary offsets in ways that that we didn't expect. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, will be notable about 2020, uh, among many, many notable things about this year, but specifically in our world of, of sustainable business, has been the growth of the net zero commitments that companies and, and China and the cities and states and others have been making to, in effect, zero out uh, their carbon footprint by, depending on, on the year, anywhere from 2035 to 2060. Um, and that means that uh, for the inevitable energy use that uh, does have uh, fossil fuels or some kind of carbon emissions associated with it, you have to offset the, that portion of it after you've used uh, renewables, after you've you've done all the efficiency measures. We we ran an article uh, a few weeks ago that said those commitments have have doubled over the past year. And from what I can see, uh, and what happened at Climate Week a couple of weeks ago, those are just continue to be ramping up. So that is creating this demand for offsets. And in, I think, as you, to your point, outside of aviation, which, by the way, is starting to come back and will, you know, be, you know, not soaring necessarily, but at least reaching a, a, some altitude in the next year or so as people, you know, 
tiptoe back onto airplanes. Uh, and as airplane and as as airlines themselves around the world uh, have have their own commitments, and there's an air, some industry wide commitments around um, no new uh, net new uh, emissions starting, I think this year or next. Um, even with the growth of flying, at least that was in place and will probably resume at some point, no net new emissions. So that means that any new emissions have to be offset. So we're going to be seeing after decades, really, of, of, of you know, sort of going along at one or two or, you know, s- small growth curves, it's going to start to really uh, take off. And, um, and how that happens is going to be the subject of a lot of, of discussion and a lot of, as you said, terminology. Is it, is it net zero? Is it uh, net carbon free versus carbon neutral? Uh, but I think that it's really an encouraging sign that, that offsets are, are back on. Mm-hmm. And there's just one other trend I'd like to point out before we close out this is that where the, uh, the value is in these and it's forestry and land use, right? And we, we've seen that with all of these um, declarations of how to, and nature-based solutions. I mean, it points to the, the value of those. So it's a, I, I definitely think everyone who's thinking about the offset market and trying to understand it better should, to, should look at this piece because we're trying to get our arms around it. I'm sure <laughs> there's so much going on. It gotta be, gotta be confusing. Joel, while you were on vacation last week, you wrote you wrote two features which I found fascinating on Beauty Counter's work on the mica supply chain. I must confess, and I'm actually I'm actually embarrassed to admit this because of what I do for a living, but I did not understand the full extent of this substance and what it means for the beauty supply chain, um, the, the blushes and the, the shiny eyeliner and sh- eyeshadow and so forth that we wear, that we women affect, I, I affect on stage <laughs> at our Green Biz events. Um, but your, your piece on what Beauty Counter is doing to understand and address this supply chain is thorough and really, really important. So why I would love to know what prompted you to look at this issue. <laughs> Why was this on your mind? Where did yeah. it come from? <laughs> it's, yeah. not, it's, it's definitely not my makeup use. Um, so I've long been fascinated with what I call the stories at the ends of supply chains. The things, the very beginnings, the commodities that are mined or farmed or otherwise sourced, um, often in uh, by by smallholder farmers or, or local artisans, um, uh, bespoke operations, uh, ad hoc informal economy kinds of things, uh, all over the world, and often in 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 some of the poorest parts of the world. Um, and I learned about uh, what was going on with Micah from um, my friend Sasha Calder, who is one of our thirty under thirties, uh, who is the director of sustainability at a company called Beauty Counter, which is a privately held company uh, in based in Santa Monica, California, a seven year old company. 
um, they sell their products directly through its website and and through some stores like uh, Sephora and others. And then they have fifty thousand independent consultants who 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 sell to their friends and neighbors, I guess. Um, and in fact, we had Greg Renfrew, the CEO. I did an interview with her on stage a couple of years ago. But Sasha had just come back from India when when we spoke. This is I guess last year, and was talking about what they're doing. And it just opened my eyes, and I said, "That's a." Really interesting story. The story of how companies, how brands, consumer brands in particular, are dealing with these topics. At, you know, again, at the at the ends of supply chains, from which they they don't have necessarily a lot of clout, is interesting. So here's mica. Mica is this mineral that's used in so many things, from brake linings and car paint to LED lights and you know, gas and oil and gas drilling fluids and printing inks and toothpaste and and cosmetics. And so um, mica comes from the Latin word that means to shine or glitter. uh, And uh, it's what makes things shiny. And so it's mined all over the world, including in in the United States. But uh, there's a part of, of India and East India in the in the province of, of Jharkhand and, and Bihar, that um, it's called the mica belt. It's some of the richest veins of mica, and that's where Beauty Counter um, sources some uh, of its mica because it's the particular type of mica there. There's about 30 different kinds uh, that just provides the qualities that it wants in in its products. And uh, it turns out that there's a huge child labor issue there where uh, kids as young as four years old, uh, you know, working in mines with, along with their brothers and sisters and parents in some cases, um, you know, picking apart. And these are these are illegal operations in many cases. So there's no standards or regulation. And, uh, you know, taking mining this mica, which then goes out into this sort of complex supply chain route and ultimately ends up in a factory that produces all of those things that I mentioned and, and many, many others. So um, they decided, this is a pretty small privately held company. They don't disclose their revenue, but I, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's under a billion dollars, which makes them small by industry standards. And they said, well, what can we do? Uh, how do we fix this? So uh, they they brought on... Uh, a company called SourceMap. It's a supply chain mapping software company and um, engaged uh, a number of different players and ultimately set foot in Jharkhand in in eastern India and and looked at what was going on and is still in the process of, of getting it right, but they are on a path. So all of that's to say is I wanted to tell this story and I wrote two pretty longish for me pieces uh, about this and I want to play you a few clips from some of the interviews that I did, uh, just give you a flavor for, for for what this is about. And the first one, sort of a, a stage setting clip, uh, these are all just a minute or two long, is with Leo Bonani, who is the CEO and founder of SourceMap. He sort of sets the stage talking about what mining looks like in these villages. If you, if you visit these places where mica is, is plentiful, I mean, the ground is, is literally shimmering. You, you can dig a hole anywhere with your hands and start to come upon you know, big chunks of this very, very pretty, very shiny rock. And, and effectively, they uh, will mine as much as they can, either informally, sort of anywhere uh, that they find it, or uh, working 
in and around mines that are ostensibly closed or off limits, but they, they get on the property and they start digging a hole about as big as, as a person or as big as a family. And then they take it, from what we can tell, to a local warehouse. And this could be a very small operation, just the size of a, of a single family home, uh, where people are basically just sorting it out into different grades, qualities, cleaning out the uh, impurities, and then bagging it uh, onto trucks uh, to then be transported to factories where it's actually refined. And that's where the grinding and the coloring and the, sometimes they fire treat it. Uh, they do all sorts of things to get the right colors and, and textures that uh, industry is looking for. And it's those um, you know, surprisingly small operations that, that are aggregating the mica not far from where it's mined that uh, have not yet been really mapped or audited. So with that set up, I talked to Lindsay Dahl, who's the senior vice president at Beauty Counter of Social Mission. You know, what did you learn from this? What did you conclude needed to happen? And here's what she had to say. There's a few things that we learned. It confirmed that traceability is key. We learned that the mica industry is a lot more informal than even what we had read about or learned from our phone audits. And the informality is where um, different human rights and worker issues can arise. And so the antidote to that informality is through traceability. And the second is that we had to continue to do a lot of relationship building with the suppliers that granted us access to go audit. And so um, just because they said, yes, you can go, doesn't mean that that was the end of the story. It actually is really the beginning of the story for us. And we've always known this is going to be a long journey. And so that relationship building is one that kind of reaches lots of different levels across uh, really expansive, you know, in some cases, small, in some cases, really large multinational corporations. And that relationship building is going to be the success or the key to our success long-term to make sure that we have suppliers that are willing to be transparent with us so we can therefore be transparent with the consumer. One of the things that fascinated me is that if you go on the website of a lot of different cosmetics companies, uh, L'Oreal, Lush, and a bunch of others, they'll talk about MICA, but they don't really... uh, talk about what what exactly they're doing. And one of the challenges there is that uh, it's really hard to tell what these mica miners and these, these intermediary companies actually know about the provenance of the mica because it's so complex. There are these certificates that they produce that say, yep, it's produced ethically and according to all the regulations and without child labor. But it turns out there's not a lot behind them. So, you know, I asked Lindsay Dahl at Beauty County, why she thought that uh, there wasn't more being done. And it was really interesting what she had to say. I think some brands think they are going deep. And so um, I think they just are taking their supplier's word for it of, oh, you're the expert, you're the supplier, you've given me this thing that looks official. So why would I even need to dig even deeper? Um, So I think a lot of brands are just making assumptions that the information they've received is credible and it gives them the confidence to feel like they're making good decisions as brands. And then I'm sure there's a handful or more than a handful of companies that don't want to ask the questions because they don't want the answers. Cause once you get the answers, you have to deal with it, you know? And I think as the world and as businesses are starting to ask harder questions about supply chains, we're now, it's like in the beginning of any sort of movement and brands feel the risk around supply chain and human rights abuses 
everyone's nervous about it. And that's part of the reason that we actually wanted to use video as a format to tell the story, wanted to get out there to just help in the same way Patagonia has done for apparel and other companies are trying to do in the fashion space is just to say, we don't have all the answers and that's okay. The fact of the matter is we're starting to ask the questions and hopefully that can start to normalize this transparency journey for other brands. So it feels less scary because the fear has been holding brands back for decades and the fear and secrecy is what allows human rights abuses to perpetuate. So that's a little taste. And I want to close out with a story from Sasha Calder, the director of sustainability at beauty counter. I mentioned before 30 under 30 uh, from several years ago. Um, there's sort of a sweet moment, a sweet story um, that she talked about as she went to made two trips to Jharkhand in India uh, and and had this one experience that I think really spoke volumes about what it takes to truly understand a community and the workers and the conditions under which they're performing this grueling and often dangerous work. So here's Sasha Calder. We were visiting different villages that partner with one of the local nonprofits that we work with on the ground. And we came into the school and met with all of the children in the community. And we were sitting around and there was kind of a formal setting. We were going back and forth and we were asking questions about their daily lives. And you could just tell that there was this kind of both excitement, but more nervousness and uncomfortableness in the room. And so... I shifted the conversation instead to be around things that matter most to kids. Like, what do you like to like? What games do you like to play? And what, uh, immediately the whole room energy shifted, and they told me about this game that they play out in the fields. And I said, "All right, let, great, let's go." And so the whole community, there were probably a hundred of us, walked down this this road together, and we ended up. And um, they played with our, you know, our auditors and video crew um, showed us how to play this game. And we went from not being able to speak the same language to um, laughing and giggling and um, kind of, you know, like poking fun at each other. And it was almost immediate. And it was just this beautiful reminder of the connection between all of us. And we shared in Beauty Counters um, campaign some of the photos from us playing. And you can just tell that the kids are, are so um, thrilled to be playing. And to me, it reminded me of often this work just looks at the risks, but there's so much beauty when you can think about how much abundance can be, you know, exists already in people's lives, regardless sometimes of how much they have. Um, and also the possibility to rethink how to support communities creating their own visions because they already are playing their own games and have their own things. And who are we to come in and say X, Y, Z? That was really a powerful moment to me. boldness, equity, speed. Those are just a few of the things the world really needs from corporate climate strategy in this moment and over the next decade if we hope to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement. What initiatives should be at the center of what corporations are doing? Nonprofit organization series this week published the Series Roadmap 2030, which it is billing as a 10-year action plan. 
Joining me to chat about this resource is Kristen Lang, Senior Director of the Series Company Network. Kristen, hi. Hey, Heather. Thanks so much for having me. So first, some context, please. Does this roadmap replace some sort of previous blueprint? Uh, what inspired your team to produce it? Yeah, so Series released the first roadmap in 2010, where we set out some specific expectations for corporate leadership by 2020. So when we reached the end of the, the last decade, it was really this moment where we wanted to take stock. We wanted to take a look at where corporate progress had come and, and ask ourselves, did we need another roadmap? And the reality was that although we had seen progress and, and when we were looking at the many actions that we called for in the original roadmap from board oversight for sustainability to GHG emission reductions and water stewardship, we did see that there was progress, um, but largely that progress was relegated to the largest companies in the world, and there was still a lot of work to be done. So as we moved into 2020, we really were just witnessing this rapidly changing business landscape and, and noting that it was just marked by disruption, transition, transformation. And so while we thought that the events that shaped the last 10 years were significant, I think what we can all agree upon is that the early months of 2020 eclipsed pretty much anything we had previously experienced. So for us, as we were thinking about setting out this, this next series roadmap 2030, we had to look at the fact that it's more clear than ever before that the impacts of global sustainability threats from climate change to water scarcity and, and racial and gender inequity those impacts just aren't 10 years out. They're not even five years out. They're really happening right now. Um, and they're disrupting our global economies, our global corporate operations, our financial systems, and, and causing widespread suffering across our communities. So what we came to realize was that we've reached the decade where we're just running out of time. And that's why we created the Series Roadmap 2030. Walk me through the three components deemed essential in the roadmap. Absolutely. So the series roadmap 2030 lays out three components of corporate action that we believe are essential for realizing a more equitable, just, and sustainable future. So the first are critical impact actions. These are actions that focus on stabilizing the climate, protecting water and natural resources, and building a just and inclusive economy. And it's in identifying those impacts where we looked at what are the most material issues across all industries across all companies of any size that have the greatest potential for disrupting our planet, their communities, and the economy. The next area is called the business integration actions. And these are the actions that are guiding companies as they think about transitioning their core business um, and internal corporate systems to support long-term success and value creation in this new, more just and sustainable economy. So these actions are really focused on re-engineering re corporate systems and business models across business accountability, strategic planning, and then transparency and disclosure. And finally, and this one's probably the most critically important uh, within the Roadmap 2030 itself, are the systems change actions. And these are the actions that are challenging companies to drive the systems level transformation that's needed to be able to support and enable sustainable business practice both within their own companies but then across industry-wide. And it's here that we're calling for companies to ramp up policy advocacy, really redefine investor engagement, and then also bring multi-stakeholder, I'm sorry, multi-sector collaboration to scale. 
The roadmap sets some specific milestones over the next decade. What are they and how were they set? So the series roadmap 2030 is designed to address those issues with the greatest potential to disrupt the global economy. So when we look at that, it calls on companies to, again, stabilize the climate, protect water and natural resources, and build a just and inclusive economy. And it goes beyond that. It details the specific milestones that companies should meet today to 2025 and then on to 2030. So, for example, some of the milestone actions include calling on companies to commit to set a net zero emissions um, commitment by 2040, achieving resource positivity across key commodities by 2030, looking at uh, achieving water balance in watersheds of high water stress, and then also enabling a just and inclusive transition as we look about building an economic future that then supports the well-being of workers and their communities. So it's these actions and then the respective milestones across the, these five-year increments that we developed really in looking at the science, looking at the economics, and what society is telling us is going to be necessary for companies to address these most pressing sustainability threats. They also um, serve to reference existing standards. And this is important because we did not want the series roadmap to be um, you know, redundant with other things that are out there. We wanted to be able to use this as an opportunity to bring together all of the great resources, all of the, the widely um, respected, incredible frameworks that are out there, and those that are supported by the external stakeholder community and experts, including investors, together to help companies to really cut through the noise, look at what's kind of expected of them across their external stakeholder groups, and know what resources they can use to get there. And, and what's a little bit different about the series Roadmap 2030 is that it doesn't stop at asking companies to simply make more ambitious commitments. It's guiding them through what comes next. And that's looking at implementation, innovation, investment, collaboration, and eventually bringing those solutions to scale by the time we get to 2030. And it's also looking at guiding companies to address the policies and the systems that then guide internal business decision making. So again, looking at accountability, strategic planning and execution, and disclosure, so that companies are effectually changing themselves from the inside out, and that are starting to take the necessary steps to ensure that the more ambitious goals that they're setting can actually be achieved. You've mentioned the need for a just transition a few times. What role should a focus on environmental justice play? How can companies better integrate those concerns into their corporate sustainability strategy? Yeah, if the events of 2020 have really shown us anything, it is the interconnectedness of the challenges we face. So failure to address one issue is just going to exacerbate the risk of another. So when we look at companies taking action to catalyze positive change, when they look at those issues more holistically at the interconnectedness of them, it strengthens the response and it can have effects that amplify well beyond the individual action itself. So the 2020 pandemic, I think, you know, just brought into clear focus for us the inequalities, the inequities, that the global labor force lives daily, um, as well as these gaping holes in our social safety nets. So my hope is that forward-thinking corporate leaders will really view the past few months as this wake-up call. It's a, it's a moment to finally recognize that the reality for people of color and indigenous communities, even more so the women within these communities around the globe, 
just are too often bearing the brunt of these human rights violations, industrial pollution, looking at resource scarcity and having to, to source water for their families. So every business decision, whether a company is opening a facility, they're launching a product, they're hiring a manager, citing a solar farm, um, identifying specific solutions that they can then raise up and help to address some of these critical challenges like climate change, like water scarcity, companies are going to have to start to take a hard look at the human impacts of those business decisions and really think about where they're identifying and investing in those solutions that can help drive us towards a more clean energy and, and really resource positive future. Give me real world examples of companies that are already taking steps that are that are aligned with the roadmap and, and what makes them unique? You know, I'm, I guess I'm guessing there's some companies out there that are models. Talk to me about them. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many, there's so many commitments that are coming out right now. I think this is one of the more exciting moments that despite what we've gone through over the past few months, there is really just this inspiration for companies and this momentum for more companies to be stepping forward in new and different ways to address the challenges in front of us. So one particular example is just last week, General Mills really upped their ambition by releasing a new science-based target. And this science-based target is in line with a 1.5 degrees pathway, building on their prior commitments around mitigating climate change, but also looking at building out their regenerative agricultural practices. And this is super interesting because it looks at the interconnectedness of the company's commitments to have food waste in their operations, but also advance their respect for human rights. And so the company is looking at this actually through the lens of the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. So this, again, shows a more holistic strategy that's bringing together the company's climate strategy with their human rights strategy and and with a lens of justice. So one last question. Other than consulting your new resource, what's the call to action for corporate sustainability professionals? Yeah, I think the, the... critical thing here is that companies are going to need to realize that they have to leverage their influence on the various systems that are shaping what businesses can do. And that's going to be able to enable them to take sustainability into their core business strategies to develop critical and clear business priorities, and then tackle those issues that we see as having the greatest potential um, to disrupt the economy in our communities. There really is this misunderstanding, though, that companies need to have their entire house in order before they can start to influence the communities and the systems outside of themselves. And the reality of the situation is, is that they can't wait. We just don't have enough time. Companies can continue to take actions to raise ambition, to address their own impacts across their value chain, but they also simultaneously need to be advocating for better policy, for better government regulation, and working with their industry groups and other stakeholders to be able to create this industry-wide change. I think this idea that companies are increasingly putting aside this mantra of it's outside of our control is an important one because they're going to be having to look outside themselves to ensure that they're encouraged, enabled, and incentivized to put more money into better solutions and be able to bring that scale, that change to scale. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. 
As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. While you're there, check out our six free e-newsletters. You can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. We love your comments, questions, and tips. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com.